We have finally made it to our last drunk and smutty Christmas episode. I do believe that you voted for the most depraved tale of them all. Guess what, kids? We're going to read Les 120 Journées de Sodom, ou L'École du Libertinage, also known in English as The 120 Days of Sodom. Are you ready? Tis the season. I hope you're ready to spend a naughty holiday season together. You won't need your hot beverage or a crackling fire to keep you warm. No, no, no. This holiday season, I'll be keeping you warm with all sorts of lustful, carnal, dare I say, obscene tales from the masters of smut. Grab your favorite ardent spirit. Ardent spirit? Aquavitae, grog, hooch, alcohol, my love. Get cozy and let your mind wander as you listen to me read indecent and downright lewd passages from selected Victorian erotica. Listener's discretion is strongly advised, as I'll be reading sexually explicit material. You have been warned. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. We have finally made it to the last episode in our Drunken Smutty series. And you voted for quite the tale. It's disgusting, it's obscene, it's cringe-worthy. And these are just some of the words I could use to describe the 120 days of Sodom. But before I go into, into all of it, basically, <laughs> uh, I just wanted to say thank you so much for tuning in um, and showing all the love that you have for this series, for this holiday season series. Um, I really do hope you enjoyed it. I know I enjoyed making it, and I know I was a bit late in posting and uploading because of, well, life getting in the way and also technical difficulties. And also, I had really bad allergies <laughs> one of the days, and I couldn't even... I couldn't even speak almost. So it was it was pretty bad. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't speak. It was just awful. But we've made it. We're here. And we're going to talk about the most depraved book, one of the most depraved books um, or novels, erotic novels that the Marquis de Sade wrote. Now, side note, the last two, so The Lustful Turk is pre-Victorian. That was the last um 
erotic novel we read from and this one is is very is pre pre victorian erotica um it's during the time of the french revolution around that time um it was written so i'm going to give you some background information on some of the characters in 120 days of sodom and also what the story is about um I've I've said this before on the other ones, but this one, this one, my friends, this one is rough as fuck. And it was very difficult to select any type of passage from this book because it is so, I just, it's, I freaking cringed. That's all I have to say. So I'm going to say this now, especially when I'm going to discuss some of the themes in this book. I'm going to say it now. Listener's discretion is strongly advised. Please, <laughs> trust me. This, this is, um, oh, oh, I don't, I don't, mm -mm. just, just, if you can't, if you can't deal, <laughs> switch it off and I will totally understand. But guess what? I mean, I put it out there. You voted for it. So here we go. Y'all are are sick. That's all I have to say. <laughs> You're my kind of people and I like that. So I wanted to talk about the plot of the 120 Days of Sodom and also its main characters so that when I do read a passage or passages, I'm not too sure yet, <laughs> um, everybody's familiar with who is who. And the first about 120 pages of 120 Days of Sodom is actually us getting familiar with each of the four main characters and also their wives. So the Marquis goes into great detail. I'm not too sure why I'm so nervous about this one, but this, but this, this one, this tale makes me really nervous. So the 120 Days of Sodom, or the School of Libertinage, uh, is a novel by the French writer and nobleman Donatien Alphonse François Marquis de Sade. It's described as both pornographic and erotic, and it was written in 1785. So like I mentioned before, it is pre-Victorian. <laughs> pre so it tells the story of four wealthy male libertines who resolve to experience the ultimate sexual gratification in orgies. In order to do this, they seal themselves away for four months in an inaccessible castle in the heart of the Black Forest, with a harem of 36 victims, mostly male and female teenagers, and engage four female brothel keepers to tell the stories of their lives and adventures. So the crimes and tortures in the women's narratives inspire the libertines to similarly abuse and torture their victims, which gradually grows in intensity and ends in their slaughter. So as I mentioned before, apart from the fact that we are talking about, uh, <laughs> we're talking about torture, we are talking about sexual assault, we are talking about minors. So there's just, there's a lot of, of themes in 120 Days of Sodom. And I'm going to say it again, listener's discretion is strongly advised. All right. So the novel was never completed. It exists mainly in rough draft and note form. So Desad wrote it uh, in secret while he was imprisoned in the Bastille in 1785. And shortly after he was transferred elsewhere, um, the Bastille was attacked by revolutionaries because this is during um, uh, the French Revolution. 
And he believed that the work was destroyed, but it was instead recovered by someone who had stormed the Bastille, and it was preserved long enough thereafter to become available in the 20th century. So it wasn't until the latter half of the 20th century that it became more widely available in countries such as the UK, the US, and in France. Since then, it has been translated into many languages, including English, Japanese, Spanish, Russian, and German. It remains a highly controversial book, having been banned in some governments. I mean, I, I, I can understand why it has been. Um, due to its explicit nature and themes of sexual violence and extreme cruelty. It was, it was actually banned in the 1950s in the UK. Um, but it remains a significant interest to students and historians. So Penguin Classic uh, actually translated it uh, in 2016. So as I mentioned, the 120 Days of Sodom is set in a remote medieval castle high in the mountains and surrounded by forests, detached from the rest of the world. And it either takes place at the end of Louis XVI's reign or at the beginning of the Regence. Not too sure. Uh, so the novel takes place over five months, November to March, and it's about four wealthy Libertins who lock themselves in a castle, and the castle is called the Chateau de Siling, along with a number of victims and accomplices. So what people have found out is that the description of this castle matches de Sade's own castle, the Chateau de Lacoste. So as we said, it's the novel is not in its complete state, um, only the first section, as I said, the first 120 pages are written in detail. And after that, the remaining three parts are written as a draft in note form. So the story does portray some black hum humor, and Assad seems almost lighthearted in his introduction, referring to the reader as friendly reader. In this introduction, he contradicts himself at one point insisting that one should not be horrified by the 600 passions, I'm not too sure you should call them passions, but okay, the 600 passions outlined in the story because everybody has their own tastes. I agree. Everybody has their own tastes and it should be done with consenting adults. All right. But at the same time, going out of his way to warn the reader of the horrors that lie ahead, suggesting that the reader should have doubts about continuing. I have doubts about continuing. <laughs> and I know what lies ahead. And I'm like, oh, you're making me nervous in my hands. My palms are sweaty. Consequently, he glorifies as well as vilifies the four main protagonists, alternately declaring them free thinking heroes and debased villains often in the same passage. So the four principal characters are wealthy men who are libertine, ruthless, and each lawless and without religion. Um, it's no coincidence that these four libertines um, are authority figures in terms of their occupation. First of all, Desad, if we all, I mean, if you know and are familiar with Desad's work and life, Desad uh, despised religion. And um, he often mocked religion. He, all the time, he opposed authority. Um, and a lot of the figures in his writings are either priests, bishops, judges, and the like. And he always likens them to sexual perverts and criminals. The four protagonists are the Duc de Blangy, 
aged 50, an aristocrat who acquired his wealth by poisoning his mother for the purpose of inheritance. And he did the same thing to his sister when she found out about his plot, which technically he told her in secret and she wasn't okay with it. So he decided to kill her too. So he's the Duke is described as being tall, strongly built, and highly sexually potent, although it is emphasized that he is a complete coward and proud of it. Actually, there was, I mean, there was, I think, maybe like a paragraph about his cowardice, but when it came to everything else about his looks and everything, it went into great description, even talking about his, uh, his strong member. Let's just put it that way. Then we have the bishop or Levesque, and this is the Duke's brother. He's 45 years old, he's scrawny, and a weak man with a nasty mouth. He greatly enjoys sodomy, okay, especially passive sodomy. He enjoys combining murder with sex, and he refuses to have vaginal intercourse because he finds that disgusting. Then we have the President de Courval. He's age 60, He's a tall and lanky man, frightfully dirty about his body and attaching voluptuousness there too. This is, this is the gross part. If you're eating, stop eating. Just don't. He is so encrusted with bodily filth that it adds inches to the surface of his penis and anus. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. All right. He used to be a judge and especially enjoyed handing out death sentences to defendants he knew to be innocent. He also murdered a mother and her young daughter. I'm not going to even get into that story because it's just, it's absolutely, it's disgusting. But um, it was in the first 120 pages of the book. They described in great detail the story of this small family. And then we have Durset. So he's aged 53, and he's a banker, described as short and pale, with a portly, markedly feminine shape, although well-kept and firm-skinned. Uh, he's effeminate and enjoys receiving anal sex from men above any other sexual activity. And like his cohorts, he has been responsible for several, several murders. Okay, so I've introduced you to the four libertines. Now I want to introduce you to the four brothel keepers that used to be sex workers themselves. They're also known to be the accomplices of the four libertines that I mentioned before. So uh, the four accomplished prostitutes, middle-aged women who will relate anecdotes of their depraved careers to inspire the four principal characters into similar acts of depravity. So we have the first one, Madame Duclos. She's 48, witty, and still fairly attractive and well-kept. Next, we have Madame Champville. She's 50. She's a lesbian, partial to having her three-inch or eight-centimeter clitoris tickled. She is a vaginal virgin, but her rear is flabby and worn from use, so much so that she feels nothing there. Oh my. <laughs> I can't, sorry. Madame Martin, she's 52, especially excited by anal sex. Uh, a natural deformity prevents her from having any other kind. And the next one, the last one, is Madame Desgranges, she's 56, pale and emaciated, with dead eyes, whose anus is so enlarged 
She does not feel anything there. She is missing one nipple, three fingers, six teeth, and an eye. By far the most depraved of the four, she is a murderer, rapist, and general criminal. Oh my goodness. All right, now I'm sure that you're familiar now with the eight principal (laughs) characters. Of course, there are more, but I decided to just talk about the four main Libertines, the four Libertines, and then the four brothel keepers that are their accomplices. Let's get to the story, the passages I selected from this book, which let me tell you, was very, very difficult to choose which passages to bring to you because they are so, the acts that are committed (laughs) in 120 days of Sodom are just, I, they make me cringe. So last warning, listener's discretion is strongly advised. I was greatly surprised, said Duclos, taking up the thread of her narrative, to see all my companions laugh when I returned, and ask me if I had wiped myself, and say a thousand other things, which proved they knew perfectly well what had just happened. I was not long left in my quandary, leading me into a room adjacent to the one in which the parties ordinarily took place, and which a short while before I had been at work. My sister showed me a hole to see everything that transpired there. She told me that the young ladies found it diverting to watch what men did to their colleagues. I could come and do some spying whenever I wished, provided there was not someone already at the hole, for it not infrequently occurred, said she, that this respectable hole had a part in mysteries which would be disclosed to me later on. The week was not out before I took advantage of my opportunities. One morning, someone came and asked for a girl named Rosalie, one of the most lovely blondes it were possible to behold. I was curious to see what was to be done to her. I hid myself and witnessed the following scene. The man with whom she had to cope was no older than twenty-six or thirty. Immediately she entered, he had her sit down on a very high stool, used especially for this ceremony. As soon as she was settled, he removed all her combs and hairpins, and down all the way to the floor floated in a cloud the superb golden hair that adored Rosalie's head. He drew a comb from his pocket, combed her hair, took handfuls of it, tangled it, kissed it. Everything he did was accompanied by remarks, praising the beauty of that hair in which he took such a keen and exclusive interest. At last, from out of his trousers, he pulled a smart little prick, already quite stiff, and he promptly enveloped it in his Dulcinea's hair. Once well wrapped, he began to fondle his dart and discharged, at the same time passing his other arm around Rosalie's neck and applying his lips to her mouth. He extricated his defunct engine. I saw that my companion's hair was matted with glistening fuck. She cleaned it, put it up again, and our lovers separated. A month later, someone came in quest of my sister. This personage, I was told by the others, merited observing, for he had a most baroque specialty. He was a man of about fifty. Straight away he entered, without any preamble, without a caress, he exhibited his behind to my sister, 
who knew her part to perfection. He has her take her place on the bed. He backs towards her. She seizes that flaccid and wrinkled old ass, drives her five fingers into the orifice, and begins to struggle and battle and worry it with such force the bed creaks. Be that as it may, without bringing anything else to light, our man wriggles, twitches, follows my sister's movements, lends himself luxuriously to this fearful abuse, cries he is coming, comes, and affirms this is the greatest of all pleasures. He had indeed taken a furious buffeting. My sister was in a sweat, but what mild stuff, what lack of imagination. Although the gentleman with whom I had to do not long afterward was hardly more difficult to satisfy, he at least seemed more voluptuous and, in my view, his mania had more of the libertine tincture. He was a heavy-set man of about forty-five, short, sturdy, but energetic and hardy. Never having met a person with his predilection, my first act, as soon as we were alone together, was to hoist my skirts to the navel. A dog confronted by a hickory stick could have not looked more unhappy. Good God, dearie, let's not have any of your cunt. Please put it away. So saying, he snatched down my skirts even more hastily than I had raised them. These poor little whores, he mumbled screwing up his face in a pout. Never have anything but cunts to show you. I may not be able to discharge this evening, thanks to that exhibition, unless I can succeed in getting the accursed image of that cunt out of my head. Whereupon he turned me about and methodically raised my petticoats from behind. Guiding me himself and keeping my skirt raised at all times, he moved me about in order to observe how my buttocks bounced when I walked and then he had me approach the bed, upon which he had me lie belly down. Next, with the most scrupulous attention, he examined my ass. With one hand screening his eyes to avoid any glimpse of my cunt, whereof, it appeared, he was in mortal terror. At last, having warned me to do all in my power to conceal that unworthy, I employ his expression, part from his sight, he brought both hands to bear on my ass and manipulated it lewdly and at length. He opened it, he closed it again, spread and squeezed it, sometimes he applied his mouth to it, and once or twice I even felt him press his lips to the hole. But he still had not touched himself, nothing could be discerned. Nonetheless, he must have felt hidden pressures mount and readied himself for the denouement of his little ritual. Lie down, he told me, tossing a few pillows on the floor. Yes, down there, that's it, that will do. With your legs well spread, the ass a shade higher and the hole stretched as wide, open as it will go. Come on, wider still. He continued, noticing my docility, and then taking a stool and placing it between my legs, he sat down in such a way that his prick, which he now dragged from his breeches and began to vibrate, was, as it were, at a level with the hole upon which he was to offer a libation. His movements now grew more rapid. With one hand he frigged himself, with the other he separated my buttocks, and a few adulatory commendations seasoned with a quantity of hard language constituted his speech. Ah, bugger the Almighty, here tis the lovely ass, he cried. 
the sweet little hole, and how I'm going to wet it. He kept his word. I felt myself soaked. His ecstasy seemed to annihilate the libertin. Ah, how true it is that the homage rendered at this temple is always more ardent than the incense which is burned at the other, and my worshipper left after promising to return to see me again. For he averred I satisfied his desires very well. He did indeed come back the next day, but was untrue to me. His inconstancy led him to my sister's asshole. I observed them, saw everything. Every aspect of the rite was absolutely the same, and my sister lent herself to it with the same goodwill. Did your sister have a handsome ass? Dorset inquired. You may judge by one fact, my lord, Duclos replied. A famous painter commissioned to do a Venus with a magnificent behind asked her the following year to be his model after having, he said, consulted every procuress in Paris without finding anything to equal her. Well now, since we have a few girls of the same age here, compare her ass, the financier continued, with some of the asses you see in this room. Duclos's eyes came to rest upon Zelmir, and she told Dursette that it would be impossible not only with respect to the ass, but even with respect to the face, to find anyone who bore a closer resemblance to her sister. In that case, said Dorset, come here, Zelmir, present your cheeks. She did indeed belong to his quatrain. The charming girl approached all a tremble. She was placed at the foot of the couch, made to lie upon her belly, her rump was raised by means of cushions. The little hole was in plain sight. The lecher's prick begins to rise. He falls to kissing and fondling what lies under his nose. He orders Julie to frig him. She sets to work. His hands stray hither and yon, snatching at diverse objects. Lusts heats his brain. Under Julie's voluptuous treatment, his little prick looks as if it were about to stiffen. The lecher swears, the fuck flows, and the bell sounds for dinner. My, my, my. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of glad we've come to the end of Duclos' many tales that she recounts about her days as a sex worker. As you know, Duclos is one of the brothel keepers who was a sex worker in the past, and she recounts her tales to everyone, especially to the libertines or the lechers, so that they can do the same to their victims that are held at this castle. I must say that this was this was the most difficult of the whole series to do. I mean, of our whole Drunken Smutty Christmas series because all the passages are just are so disturbing that I chose the least disturbing passages of them all I would say because there are others that are just I could I couldn't I couldn't I, I wouldn't be able to to narrate them so I do hope you enjoyed the selected passages that I chose from 120 days of Sodom and with that we have come to the end of our drunk and smutty Christmas series 
I know there was a lot going on and like I mentioned, a lot of technical difficulties and also life getting in the way and also allergies getting in the way. And then the new year came and here we are. I finally dropped the like last episode of the series. So I would like to thank you from the bottom of my heart for all your patience. <laughs> um, I know I haven't been consistent in uploading the episodes on a weekly basis but sometimes stuff like this happens and just life gets in the way but thank you thank you thank you so much for being patient with me and I do hope you thoroughly enjoyed the my narration of some of these tales from Victorian writers and pre-Victorian writers of smut or erotica just a little update that I will be taking off the rest of January because there's so much that I have to take care of. And also I want to make some changes to Beauty Unlock the podcast and I want to come strong again with brand new episodes and guests and just a brand new way of delivering content. So I will be back in February, but of course I will keep you updated. So don't forget to follow us throughout social media and keep an eye also on our YouTube channel as I will be uploading there um, consistent, consistently. <laughs> I don't even know how to speak anymore. So follow us on Beauty Unlocked podcast or Beauty Unlocked the podcast and keep up to date with ha what's happening on our end. With all that being said, I would like to wish each and every one of you a happy, healthy, prosperous, abundant and blessed new year. Thank you so much for your endless support and... Thank you for listening to my not-so-dulcetone voice most of the time. Um, let's make 2022 bigger and better. You will hear from me very, very soon. I love you all. Take care of each other and yourselves. Bye!